The readings from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to what they, to what they are but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Let's pray before we uh, look at that passage. Let's bow our heads. Father God, we, we do thank you for... Uh, the very words that we have just sung, that all honour and blessing and power belongs to you. Father, I pray that we would acknowledge that, that we would uh, praise and sing that, not just today, but every day of our lives. And Father, we pray that uh, in the short time we have together, that you would speak to us, that you would speak uh, the power and the truth of your word into our hearts. Father, would we open our hearts to receive uh, your teaching for your word, for your instruction, for your encouragement, for your love, for your care, for all that you are, Father. Would you, uh, would you speak to us, build us up, and uh, send us out from this place, having met with you, encouraged by you, ready to serve you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A, a police officer pulled a driver uh, up and uh, asked for his license and his registration. What's wrong, officer? The driver asked. I, I didn't go through any red lights. I, I certainly wasn't speeding. No, said the officer, you weren't. But I saw you waving your fist as you swerved around that lady in the left-hand lane. And then I further observed you flushed and angry uh, as you shouted at that driver of the vehicle in front who cut you up. And then later on, down the road, I saw how you pounded the front of your steering wheel as we reached that traffic jam. Is that a crime? The driver said to the officer. No, he said, but I also observed that sticker on your bumper that said, Jesus loves you and so do I. And so I thought, well, the car must be stolen. <laughs> so the main theme of this passage this morning, it's not taxes. I'm not really going to talk much about taxes. And you go, hey. But I am going to talk about hypocrisy. 
Jesus warns us continuously in this passage and actually all through the Gospels about hypocrisy. He spots it in verse 15. If you read it there, he says, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. He knew their hypocrisy. And this hypocrisy that he spots in the religious leaders is a sign of something much, much deeper, much bigger. Hypocrisy appears to be an outward display of a much bigger and deeper issue, which we'll look at briefly in this passage this morning. He targets particularly the religious leaders and their hypocrisy, not just because it is a sin, but also because the leaders in particular have double the responsibility. And hypocrisy can, as the Gospels teach, lead people away from God. Hypocrisy, or whatever is causing it with the religious leaders, will ultimately, very soon, lead Jesus to death on a cross. And the Bible, particularly Jesus himself, speaks continuously about hypocrisy. He uses damning words. In Matthew's Gospel, he says, you can listen to the leaders, listen to the leaders, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, but for goodness sake... Do not emulate them, for they do not do what they say. They are hypocrites. Jesus says, by their actions, they literally close up the gates of heaven to people. But there is good news. The series, this series in, in Mark's gospel is all about good news. And the good news is that there is a God who shines a light on hypocrisy. And there is a saviour who teaches us a way out from the sin of hypocrisy and actually is the way out from the sin of hypocrisy. So what is a hypocrite? What is a hypocrite? Believe it or not, to begin with, the word hypocrite simply meant somebody who spoke, somebody who answered. It was really a neutral term. It simply meant to answer someone's questions or to speak in a conversation. Later, it became connected with what was a question and answer session within plays. And then it finally became connected with actors, actors in general playing a part. And that's where the term really stuck. A hypocrite was an actor, often those actors in the early stages had masks on and they were not the same person. They were not the person that they were. They were playing a part, displaying a false characterization, a mask of insincerity. And that's where the term hypocrisy comes from. But what causes hypocrisy today? We've all come across Hypocrites, I'm sure, maybe you've perhaps been a little bit of one at times. What causes it? Well, I've read from a secular magazine, a psychology magazine, and it stated this, that the root cause of hypocrisy as we see it today is twofold. The first underlying feature or character is self-interest. The second is fear. And that fear can be multifaceted. It can be a fear of change of position or status. 
It could be a fear of negative opinion from people. It could be a fear of failure. But nonetheless, it is fear that drives hypocrisy. Self-interest and fear. And so it's those two traits that we're going to look at and see as we go through this passage. And not just this passage, but the rest of the series in Mark. Because all of that will lead to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, let's look at a hypocritical alliance. A hypocritical alliance. Now, does anybody know this hypocritical alliance? The first picture is the Tehran Conference in 1943, and the second one is the Yalta Conference in 1945. You may recognize those three characters. There is Stalin, Joseph Stalin there, FDR, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, the American president, and Sir Winston Churchill. Now, in many respects, that was a hypocritical alliance for a number of reasons. Believe it or not, Franklin D. Roosevelt and Churchill did not get on that well. Uh, the Americans were really skeptical of the, Ameri of the English empire and the, the size and the growth of it. Although they had similar political uh, allegiances, they really did have issues with each other. And of course, there were huge, huge issues with Joseph Stalin. They knew, really, in 1943, some of the things that he was doing with the Russian people. But of course, it didn't really come out till much later on. But the two, FDR and Churchill, had to hide what they knew about what Stalin was doing in Russia. In many respects, they really did dislike one another. But, like all hypocritical alliances, they disliked somebody else more. And that, of course, was Hitler. And so, safety in numbers, they put aside their differences, and they teamed up to defeat the Nazi regime. But later on, obviously, in this passage, we see a hypocritical Alliance. Let's read verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. So the they is a recap, really, of what Nathan spoke about last week. The they that are sending these people are the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin are a group, and they've sent a group of people to trap Jesus in his words. This Sanhedrin council had about 70 members, plus the ruling high priests, and they were three professional groups. I think Nathan mentioned those last week. There was the high priests, uh, there was the elders, and there were the scribes. And at the time of Jesus, the two religious political parties within Judaism were represented in the Sanhedrin. We had the Sadducees, and we had the Pharisees. Caiaphas was the high priest, he was a Sadducee, and most of the scribes, some of the elders, were Pharisees. 
Just to give you a little background, the Sadducees were more conservative, really, in many of the doctrinal areas. They insisted on a literal interpretation of the Bible. Whereas the Pharisees, on the other hand, they believed in the oral traditions of the Jews that were passed down from generation to generation. And so often they would, they would use those oral traditions to get their point across. They believed that the oral traditions had equal authority to the Old Testament scripture, the Tanakh. So, this passage, the Sanhedrin sent the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch or trap in some uh, translations Jesus. And it's worthy to note right from the beginning that this word catch in Greek, it's no passive word. It really is not a passive word. The, the Greek word to catch or to trap is a violent, real violent hunting term. If we were sort of to picture you hunting an animal where you would dig a pit, you would put spikes in the bottom of that pit, you would cover it over to hide it, and then you would steer your prey to impale it within that pit to kill it. That's the kind of word that's used here in the Greek. This is no passive uh, attempt. This is not the, the Pharisees and the Herodians just trying to be right, just trying to play word games with Jesus. They are hunting him down to kill him. But what about this hypocritical alliance? We know a little bit about the Pharisees. Who are the Herodians? Well, the Herodians sided or they gave allegiance to the Herod king, hence the term Herodians. The Herods were the, the puppet kings that were put in place by Rome uh, to rule part of the region. Uh, the ruler at the time, as we read in the Gospels, uh, was Herod Antipas. And he bore the title, you may read in the Gospels, of the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch. And the Tetrarch meant ruler of a quarter, which obviously was a region, a quarter of the region. And of course, we know his involvement in the death of John the Baptist, and he also ends up facing Jesus. When Pilate tries to avoid uh, sentencing him, he realizes that Jesus is from Galilee, Galilee, which is part of the region under the Tetrarch, and he sends him to Herod for trial. So, uh, the Herodians were a Jewish sect, and unlike the Pharisees, who wanted a descendant of David to rule, the Herodians wanted uh, the Herods to rule through Rome, which of course gave them a real problem and a dislike of one another. And the problem was made even worse by the fact that many of the Herod kings were not even Jewish at all. And so the Pharisees really actually ended up hating the Herodians, and the Herodians ended up hating the Pharisees. But like any hypocritical alliance, they hated someone else more. And that someone, of course, was the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they teamed up together because, of course, based out of self-interest and fear, the fear of Jesus' popularity, then they became a team. So that's the hypocritical alliance. Let's look at next the hypocritical question. The hypocritical question. Now Jesus knows everything about everyone and he sees the Pharisees and the Herodians coming 
And he knows that this is a hypocritical trap. But it's not so easy for us, is it? It's not so easy for us. I came across a hypocrite the other day, and it took me a while to spot those signs. You see, I remember just last week, I was looking in the mirror, and there, looking back at me, was a hypocrite. Because I recalled uh, last week telling my daughter of 22 years, who's, who's living with us, not to eat cake for breakfast. I said she should not eat cake for breakfast. I remember telling her that. There was the cake on the side uh, of the kitchen. It was a very nice cake. It was a white chocolate and raspberry cake that was for uh, Ella's birthday, and uh, she wanted to have some of it for breakfast. And I said, no, no, to curb your earthly desires and go and eat something more healthy, I told her. But as I was looking in the mirror, I realized that only a few weeks beforehand, I had done exactly the same thing. We were staying at some friends down in Somerset, and for breakfast, I was tucking into cake. Now, I had the moral high ground, you see, because, of course, the cake was baked by my friends, and, of course, they had offered it to me, and I, how could I refuse? But nonetheless, there I was, tucking into cake for breakfast. So, there we have it. We have all met hypocrites. And for those of you that know me, you, I'm sure, are now shocked that I am not perfect either. But let's look at the confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Herodians, because this is much bigger than what to eat for breakfast. Let's read verses 14 and 15. Verse 14, they came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay it or shouldn't we? Well, there is a build-up to a question. They came to him and said, Teacher, and the Greek word here, didakaslos, or didakalos, is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word rabboni, or rabbi. And it means teacher or master. It is actually a form of respect. So they are actually addressing Jesus with respect. They go on, we know that you are a man of integrity. A great, again, an incredible statement. They know Jesus is a man of integrity. They are stating the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And these are amazing hypocritical words, if you think about it. But they are true. Jesus, being the Son of God, teaches the way of God in accordance with the truth. That is his foundation. And so, of course, he isn't swayed by the crowds. He doesn't care in many respects what people think or their status or who they are. Jesus is more interested in what God the Father thinks of him than what people think of him. Does Jesus love 
and care and teach the people? Of course he does. But he's not swayed by the people. And you end up seeing the blindness and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Herodians here in this conversation because everything they are commending Jesus for in his character, they are guilty of in doing the opposite. The Pharisees think the oral stories and traditions of the Jews passed down through generations are as important, if not more, to make their point. And so they do depart from the truth of God's word. And they do use these oral traditions to make their points. They are swayed by others. They do pay attention to people and what they think of them. They do care about position and status. They are important to them. All through the Gospels, Jesus mentions that. And they no longer truly teach the way of God. They have departed from the truth. Every single character trait mentioned in describing Jesus is the absolute polar opposite of the behavior of the Pharisees and the Herodians. And of course, it's made worse because they are the ones that are supposed to be pointing people to Jesus. No wonder Jesus warns everyone about this hypocritical behavior. In Matthew, Jesus really goes to town on them. He dubs them hypocrites seven times. Blind guides, he mentions twice. Fools and blind twice. Blind once and then whitewashed tombs once. And he finishes his tirade on them by designating them a brood of vipers. So let's get to the question in verse 14 and 15. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay it or shouldn't we pay it? See, they truly believe that they have Jesus trapped here in this question. The two opposite outcomes here, the two dilemmas, are actually represented by the two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians. These two possible answers, should we pay or should we not pay? Well, the Pharisees, being the Jewish leaders, would say, do not pay the tax. The Romans are obviously you know, subjecting the Jews to their occupation. It was unpopular, and therefore it would be an unpopular tax. Do not pay the tax, the Pharisees would shout. The Herodians would say, yes, pay the tax. We believe in the Herod kings, we believe in Rome, pay the tax. And so if Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax, then of course they can sell Jesus to the Roman authorities as a rebel, as a rebel uh, against the Roman occupation, and they will, of course, surely kill him. If Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, then the people will dislike him, as the tax is so unpopular. If Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, then the people will disappear. It's a win-win scenario for the Pharisees and the Herodians. And you know the rest of the passage. Let's read on. Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought the coin 
And he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Well, they should be, I guess, amazed, but as we know, not changed. But it is an answer, an incredible answer. Not only did Jesus single-handedly answer and satisfy both sides of the argument as to sort of taxation, but deep down, he answers the actual real problem that he is facing and that the Pharisees and the Herodians are facing. So let's finally look at the answer to hypocrisy. Jesus' answer has many levels. It has a number of levels. On the surface, we have the taxes. Should we pay them? Should we not pay them? The issue of taxes. And Jesus answers both sides perfectly. Pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay to God what is God's. And at that level, you could argue, is he talking about perhaps tithes? Pay to God your 10% or whatever that the, uh, the Jewish leaders uh, requested. So do we pay our tithes? Pay God his tithes, pay Caesar his taxes. It's simple at that level. But there is a deeper level, as always, with Jesus' answers. And he says, whose image is this on the coin? Whose image is this on the coin? And the answer, of course, is Caesar's image. So give back to Caesar what is his. And this is an, another sort of answer or, uh, or question answer about authority. The coin has got Caesar's image on it. It belongs to Caesar. So give it back to Caesar. That's a good answer. But then he obviously goes on and says, give back to God what is God. And so the question is, what is God's to give back? And I think we might know the answer. In Genesis 1:26, God says this, let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. And so we are, Christian and non-Christian, all made in God's image. And so the answer of the second level of that question is, who owns us? Whose image is on us? And the answer, of course, is God's. God's image is on us. And so what are we to give back? Us. You. All of you. Jesus is really saying, give yourself to God. His image is on you. He owns you. You belong to him. And he wants all of you. Your heart your soul, your mind, your strength. Give yourself to God. And the final thing I think perhaps we could go even one step further than this. 
And that is, again, an image issue. Who has God's image? Paul writes in Colossians this, that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. So Jesus is actually saying, deep down, give your lives to me. Give your lives to me. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Yes, pay your taxes. Yes, pay your tithes. But more importantly and deeply, give your lives, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength to God. And more importantly, give your lives to my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the visible image of the invisible God. And that's the thing the Pharisees, the Herodians, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they could not do that. They could not make that connection. Their self-interest and fear had sent them in another direction. You see, in Mark, all the way through Mark, particularly fear. Mark 11, verse 18. For they feared Jesus. Mark 11, 31. They feared the people. Mark 12, verse 12. But they were afraid of the crowd. All the way through, you see their fear and the direction that it takes them. Now, if we were honest, I think all of us could agree that we can suffer from various levels of self-interest and fear. Self-interest and fear. Maybe, maybe if you're not a Christian here this morning, that might be the case for you. Maybe you're thinking, I like my life the way it is. Maybe you fear change. Maybe you fear what your friends or your family might think if you did give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the truth of it is, God made you in his image and he wants you back. He wants you to give your life back to him. He owns you. You belong to him. And God does say that fear is a good thing, but only the fear of judgment, of sin. The Bible does teach about that. We are not to fear people, not to fear the crowds, not to fear earthly opinions, but we are to fear God's opinion because he is going to judge sin. He is going to deal with it. And if you haven't got the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will have eternal separation from him, he says. But the good news is that in less than a week, according to Mark, Christ will go to the cross. In less than a week, the Sanhedrin 
will get the crowd screaming, crucify him, and Jesus will die. But after he's buried, God will raise him again. And if we trust in his sacrifice, if we trust in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, then God says, we will never be more free. We will never be more loved. We will never be more secure. That's the good news. And for those of us who do profess Christ, then the challenge, I guess, for us this morning is perhaps to take a look in the mirror. Take a look in the mirror and just ask yourself, am I reflecting God's image? Am I giving back to him all that belongs to him? Am I giving all of my life, my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength? Or am I wearing a mask today? Am I playing the hypocrite? Am I acting like a good Christian? Am I turning up to church, but that's just about it? What are our levels of self-interest and fear that are stopping us giving all of ourselves to Christ, myself included? Remember the call of Christ to give God what belongs to God. That's our challenge for this morning. Let's pray. Father, we humbly come before you and we ask for your forgiveness afresh today for perhaps not giving all of ourselves to you, for the sin of fear and self-interest that continuously plagues us. Father, we pray that you would lift that from us, that you would give us a fresh understanding of who you are that we may reverently fear you, the judgment of sin, and place all of ourselves, our entire lives, on the Lord Jesus Christ for his sacrifice, for his love that took him to the cross. Father, we pray that we would live out our lives in worship and praise and understanding of all that he has done for us. And Father, we just ask that you would Place that truth deep inside our hearts this morning that we may, in the days and the weeks ahead, remember, meditate on that, pray on that, and live out the truth that you have taught us today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.